Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 11.4, the fourth episode in our series on Everglades and Biscayne National Parks. In this episode, Brian talks with park ranger Allison Gant about the Everglades before it became a national park, how it became protected, its role during the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and recreation activities for visitors and the park. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience by telling your friends, subscribing, and leaving a review. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on Everglades National Park. Okay, I'm here with Allison Gant, Acting Chief of Public Affairs, Everglades National Park. Allison, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for taking time out. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. So we're excited to have you. So we were just talking off mic. We, uh, we were down in Everglades, but couldn't do everything we wanted to do. We were down during the shutdown, which again, we talked about this on our podcast. It was a big decision for us to decide whether or not to continue with our trip for the shutdown. We think we lucked out and we were there before the park really started to show a lot of strain with the volunteers. But that being said, we couldn't do everything that we wanted to do. So we wanted to get kind of some scope here. So I think on the second half, we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that we missed and some of your wrecks. But Allison, where I wanted to start out was a little bit of the background of Everglades and a little bit of the history. So I think my first question is, if we went back in time a thousand years ago and, and we were looking down on the landmass of Florida, how far would the Everglades ecosystem as we know it now, the park, how far would that extend say, up the peninsula of Florida? Yeah. So the Everglades is a pretty young ecosystem, ecologically or you know, evolutionarily speaking. We say sort of in the 8,000 years range, I believe. Okay. But if we were to go back in time before settlement, say, yes. uh, you would find Everglades ecosystem pretty much stretching from Lake Okeechobee south to Florida Bay uh, and the Gulf of Mexico. Today, Everglades National Park is sort of the bottom 25% of that watershed. And south of Lake Okeechobee, before you got into Everglades, there was this pond up forest. And then beyond the pond apples, uh, you would get into the, you know, the sawgrass, prairie, marsh, you know, the wetland ecosystem that basically is the river of grass that flowed. Mm-hmm. So Lake Okeechobee historically spilled out over its southern boundary, sort of south and the water moved uh, southwest through the center of the peninsula and water flowing about a quarter of a mile a day all the way from Lake Okeechobee out to so fresh water flowing across the landscape through the center out to Florida Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. So again, this the Everglades National Park, as vast as it is, is a much diminished part of what the what the overall ecosystem was all those years ago. And you know, I think one thing we learned, but but maybe straighten us out here, is that the park as it is is a bit on it needs some artificial support. It, it's it's not existing in a, in the natural state. Is that is that true? And then how how are we keeping the park sustainable? And how are we keeping it going? Right. So south of the lake was really fertile land. And so that was cleared for agriculture, for farming. So south of Lake Okeechobee, you now have a section of farmland. 
And then further, you know, if you keep coming south, there's a section of um, we've created these water conservation areas. Humans have created not necessarily the, not the park. So these water conservation areas are significant in that they help with flood control and water storage. So the water is all kind of managed through there. And then because we're at the end of that water flow, end of the watershed, water is pumped through canals around some of those areas because you want to drain the farmland, you want to store the water below that in those water conservation areas, but then we want to pump it back into the park and let it flow freely again. Does that make sense? It does make sense. What, what I didn't know then, and, and I learned something there, is that so there is a symbiotic relationship with the farmland. The farmland has runoff that they need to to drain and get rid of. So it's not necessarily just a, you know, literally and figuratively, a one-way avenue of water coming in there's or or uh, not just the water coming in but of supporting the everglades that there is some symbiosis with actually that farmland yes partially and it would be ideal if all of that water kept coming to us but instead they built canals gosh they started building canals in the late 1800s and all the way through the 1900s and a lot of that water was redirected away from the farmland and dumped to tide so out to the oceans oh, I so see. they dug four major yeah there's like Four major canals. Four. They took rivers that were not connected to Lake Okeechobee, connected them to allow the water to run off to right. flow away. So that was all water that used to come here to Everglades, you know, through the whole Everglades ecosystem. In addition to the rainfall, and now goes out to the oceans. You know, I guess I didn't think of that either. You know, the muddy but flowing the river of grass that also creates a very verdant area and a very arable area for farming. And I, I guess putting two and two together, that this is a that soil must be pretty rich and must be must have been and very tempting for farmers to say, well, let's let's drain this out because whatever we throw down there is going to grow. And of course, we saw that as well right up to the border of the park. There are farms, right? There are fruit farms and, and other types of farms. So uh, we're lucky we have Everglades, which leads to my next overall question on, on kind of the background. So, you know, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is, she seems to be a giant of the Everglades preservation story. Can you just sketch out what she did and how she was able to, I guess, arrest the rest of the development uh, of Everglades and, and ensure that there was a park? So Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was definitely a voice for the Everglades. She was a journalist and she came from, I believe, Chicago and came here to South Florida. And she wrote a book called um, Everglades River of Grass. And that was one of the first published pieces, I guess, that got Everglades on the radar a little bit and got people to, to pay attention. If you read the book, it's um, very verbose and full of very descriptive, beautiful adjectives about the Everglades. But I also heard somewhere along the line that journalists were paid by the word. So yeah, uh, that's kind of an interesting little piece there. But Marjorie was a huge advocate for the Everglades. And the thing that's really significant about her is that she lived in Miami. She lived in an area called Coral Gables. And she knew that the, she knew, understood the value of the Everglades to her life, to her urban life. And the Everglades was not a place that she visited all that regularly. She appreciated it. She would come out here, but she didn't necessarily recreate like many of us do today with, you know, boating and fishing and hiking. She appreciated it. It's mentioned that, you know, she appreciated it for its serenity, for its beauty, but also for the knowledge that our water, our drinking water supply comes from the Everglades. Did you, do you think there was an attitudinal uh, obstacle that, that she and, and the other activists had that, in other words, at the time when people thought of a park, they thought of the existing grandeur of a Yellowstone or Yosemite. And, and was there an attitude of, well, this is just a, a swamp with, uh, with alligators and mosquitoes. Why would we ever want to preserve this? Let's, uh, 
let's turn it into farmland. It, did she have to overcome that type of attitude in her advocacy? Yes, most certainly. Both she and Ernest Coe were huge advocates for the park, and Ernest Coe was really significant in helping to push that, and he apparently wrote letters quite frequently to Washington, D.C., advocating for the park, trying to convince people that they needed to come down here and see this and that it needed to be set aside as a national park. So it was set aside as the first national park simply for its biodiversity, and that was huge. And it literally took getting some folks from Washington down here and taking them out on a blimp out over the Everglades to see what a spectacular landscape this was. And so imagine flying over the Everglades with that aerial view and seeing those waterways and that flow of water and the gatherings, the flocks of birds that were out here. And uh, that's what it took to convince people uh, to make this a national park. But the blimp sounds pretty cool. I don't know if the National Park Service can yeah. bring that back, but that sounds all right. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> there you but, go. <laughs> uh, but you, but you, I, I think you're right. And, and look, I'll, I'll take the hit here, and I, I won't speak for Danielle or, or anybody else in our family. To call it a swamp is so reductive and unfair. Obviously, it has some swamp characteristics, but even me saying that is reductive. Um, again, the sawgrass and shark. Shark Valley, some of the things, Shark Alley, some of the things we've talked about before, it is some, It is like nothing I've ever seen. I've seen swamps. We have swamps here on Long Island. Uh, it is, it oh, is yeah. incredibly unfair and reductive to call it that. And I, it's funny that uh, those officials years ago had to see it by a blimp. Well, I had to see it three weeks ago, um, you know, with my own eyes as well to really understand how diverse and intricate and of course, how beautiful Everglades is. So it, it really just whet my appetite to come back for more. Oh, that's great to hear. Say, I always describe it as it's really in the details. So the more you learn about the park, the more interesting and the more fascinating it becomes because it's about the interactions between the plants and the animals and the physical resources too. That's very well put. And I think that's also what I learned and our kids learned, but what I learned as an adult going down there. So I, I had to eat some humble pie as well. It was exciting. I know there's more history we can talk about, but just in the interest of time, I want to toggle to talking about some of the recreational activities that are available and some of the things that, whether you're there by yourself or families, uh, what they can do. So we talked about some of the things uh, before on our trip, but one thing which bridges kind of the history, but also something you can do is, can you tell me a little bit about the Nike Missile Site? I think this may be one of the few national parks that actually has something as uh, as grave as a uh, Nike Missile Site. What was the Nike missile site and what what was that missile pointing toward? Right. That's a tremendous story there. So the Nike missile here was part of the Cold War, but particularly part of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The site as it stands today was built several years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. The battalion was sent here during the Cuban Missile Crisis and they were on their way here and they got here kind of just at the end of it and began to set up in the farm fields just outside of Everglades National Park and some great accounts that just talk about them trying to set up a tent city in the middle of this wetland, right, and the marsh and the mosquito, how bad the mosquitoes would have been in the heat. But the Nike missile site is particularly significant because there were air defense, these missiles were designed to shoot down incoming missiles from Cuba had the Russians launched an attack at the United States. And this was sort of one of the the reform missile batteries here in South Florida. And these were the first ones that would have tried to stop those incoming missiles to the U.S. It's pretty chilling when you're out on your little vacation in the Everglades to realize that that was there. And that's not that long ago. And of course, Homestead Air Force Base was just a stone's throw away. So kind of the tip of the spear looking down 
towards Cuba. But tell me, there's a hike there. You can go see that site. So what, what is that hike called and how does one access that? And what else is around there aside from the missile site? Yeah, so we have most days during the winter, sort of our winter season is our busy season, kind of from Thanksgiving to early April. It's open from 10 to 2 and you can drive out there and it's uh, open and available for visitors to come in. And then almost every day at 2 p.m., there's a ranger guided tour and it's a great way to access that site. And I know you guys had a chance to see the Anhinga Trail, which used to be our most popular ranger guided hike. But since the Nike missile site has opened, that has actually superseded that, the Anhinga Trail in popularity, at least numbers wise. No kidding. Oh, well, that's great to hear. So let's get a little bit more arduous and then we'll shift it back to some of the more uh, easy, pleasurable activities. Backcountry camping. So uh, tell me, what's a chicky and uh, how would I access one of these chickies in the backcountry? Yeah, a chicky is the structure that we use for backcountry camping. It's a camping platform. So it has a roof and it has a floor and then open sides, right? And it's raised up off the water and it's made of wood and recycled wood, plastic wood planking or decking. For all of those sites, you're going to paddle either out to them or take a a powerboat to get to those. That's right. So in in essence, you're camping over the water on this this platform in the Everglades. Yeah. Right. So you're on a raised platform. And the problem is, is that in the mangroves, there's very little dry land. Right. You might get some patches of dry land, but it, just having so many campers there would really impact it. Whereas having the chickies, it enables a little bit more of a footprint. It uh, doesn't get so muddy. In most places, there's a pair of chickies, so two together, and they're connected by a walkway mm-hmm. to a, a composting toilet. Right. They look really cool. So uh, now tell me, uh, what are some of the more popular backcountry excursions. And then how would I, uh, just to, to square this off, just can you tell us a little bit about getting a backcountry permit so we're compliant if we're uh, in the backcountry? So we have uh, chicky sites and we have beach sites. For the chicky sites, a real popular and easy trail to access is the Hell's Bay Canoe Trail. That's one of my favorites just because you can do a short, you know, several hours to get to kind of the, the first chicky, mm-hmm. camp out for the night, and then you can come back the next day. If you want to do something longer, there's some circle, some loop trips that you could do, but there's also the 99-mile wilderness waterway that Mm. runs all the way from Everglades City and our northwestern boundary south to uh, Flamingo, which is in the southernmost part of the peninsula. That's mostly chicky sites, but there's a few beach sites in there, as well as you could also go from Flamingo 10 miles out to kind of a beach, a beautiful beach called Cape Sable, just sort of wide open sandy beach to camp on. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Um, so how long will that uh, that 99-mile trip, how long will that take you? And uh, I assume one needs to pack in their own fresh water? Yeah, you do have to bring everything with you. There's no pit stops. There's no, and you're paddling through salt water, you know, or at least brackish water, which is a mixture of fresh and salt. So you don't want to count on having fresh water out there. And uh, seven to 10 days is what we recommend for people. And you can, seven is doing a fair amount of paddling each day. You're paddling 10 to 14 miles a day to kind of cover that. Wow, that sounds amazing. Now hit me between the eyes. How bad are the mosquitoes? It depends. (laughs) Uh, So if, yeah, um, you can do it. Generally, people do that in the winter months. And it really depends on the year. So uh, like this year, it was still really nice in October, November. Sometimes we can have mosquitoes lingering at that time. But generally, people do that the most from December through April. You get uh, a little bit cooler weather, fewer mosquitoes, but you will be out there with there's more of a chance for those storm fronts, winter storms to kind of push down and uh, increase the, the winds. And you don't have to worry so much about flowing water. You have to worry more about the direction of the wind. 
um, that mm. you're paddling against or into. And where can I get a uh, backcountry permit? Yeah, so we have two locations for the backcountry permits, either in Everglades City at the Gulf Coast Visitor Center or in Flamingo at the Flamingo Visitor Center. And you have to get those, you can get the permits the day of or the day before your trip. We don't take advanced reservations, you know, so you come in and then you book, you have to know where you're going to stay or plan to stay for each of each of your nights. So when you come in, if you're coming in for that seven day trip, you're going to pick all seven days, you know, all seven nights mm-hmm. that you're going to, where you're going to be. And then you need to stick to those because other people are coming in and, and booking other chickies. Um, and, you know, there really is an extra room on the chickie to squeeze in with somebody. So you really do want to be respectful of uh, sticking to your, your timetable. Yeah, right. I, I, I seen those chickies. It's not as though it's a, uh, it's a spread out. It is a two platforms connected by a compostable toilet. That is it. So you can't just, you can't get the whole party up there. It's, it's one tent right. per platform. Right. And it's a max of six people generally on one side of the chickie. Wow. So six, even six seems a little tight, but yeah, I, I hear what, yeah, I hear what, I hear what you're be. saying. Yeah. And you do want freestanding tents because there's no, you know, you can't stake anything into the ground, you know, so yeah. you might want to be able to tie it to the sides, but they need to stand by themselves. Right. So in other words, if it's six, just make sure you really like those other five people. Otherwise you it got could be it. a long night. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stick to kayaking a little bit and canoeing. So uh, getting away from the backcountry, just day trips, family trips, uh, excursions. Uh, what would you recommend? Where Where should we embark from? Where can we rent kayaks? And uh, and, and where do you think we should go? Uh, one of my favorites is Nine Mile Pond. It's about 10, actually a little more than that, 11 miles away from Flamingo. And it's right on the edge of the mangroves, where the mangroves transition into the sawgrass prairie. So you get a little taste of both. You get some of the twisting tunnels through the mangrove trees. And then you also get the wide open expanse of the the grassy prairie. It's a marked trail, 5.2 miles, if I remember correctly. And then there's a shortcut that makes it like two and a half. And you do need to do that in when the water level is, is good. You always want to check on the conditions. As you get into March and April, depending on the year, it can be too dry to do the whole thing. Yeah, we, we saw that one and we just ran out of time. That's one we were thinking of, uh, mm-hmm. of trying to do. So that, that seems like a one for next time. Now, staying with... Uh, aquatic vessels. And, and we honestly, we didn't know the answer to this question. Can you give us the, what's the story with the airboats? We, we know you have concessionaires. It seems like concessionaires that can go into the park on airboats. Are they at all harmful to the environment or, or is there noise pollution or what's just, what's the deal with, can we be responsible park uh, goers and, and have an airboat excursion? Yeah. So, you know, it is a valid point that uh, they do leave trails behind. So where these can, where the airboat tours run, they have been running for many years, for decades on these, you know, kind of established trails that they've created. They do stick to those uh, or supposed to. Those properties have been there a long time. We recently acquired those as, and they're now part of the national park and they're now operating there as authorized concessions within our park. And it is a particular, you know, it's a different kind of experience. Everybody comes looking for something different and lots of people have envisioned or seen in movies and heard about airboats. And it's, totally. it's an impressive, an impressive feeling. You know, it's just a, a amazing feeling to be sort of gliding across the water, right? And yeah. sort of swishing about and sort of and feeling like you don't have brakes, right? Because you really don't, you know, they just have to sort of slow down or spin around, but they are loud, you know, so if you're here for that really serene, quiet, peaceful experience, 
you know, you might be heading into the backcountry and paddling. Yeah. But if you want, you know, to mix it up, that's a, a different way to experience the park and the areas that they're going in. I would say the wildlife are probably pretty used to having those airboats through there and they have a lot of other places they could choose to go potentially. So, you know, I'd, I'd leave that one up to your own um, values and, and what kind right. of experience you're looking for in the park. Hey, no judgments. We prefer the more serene trips, but at the same time, as a child of the 70s and the 80s, I grew up watching Burt Reynolds and Gator, so I understand how people think airboats, as I do, are pretty cool. We just didn't, we right. honestly did not know. And so that, I, I wanted to ask that question of you. So uh, yeah, but again, Burt Reynolds and Gator is a, is a cool look. So uh, now, yep. a little bit more of a, let's go to the mellow part of it. So, you know, Danielle is a... Uh, avid bird watcher and this was uh shangri-la for bird watching so oh, I bet. what are some of the great bird watching spots and when if we're there not in the winter is it still great for bird watching can you can you give us some advice about about that yes uh, so definitely you can catch lots of migrant species in the fall and in the spring coming through but it is good burning all winter long and one of the things that happens here is our wet season dry season cycle really impacts the wildlife um, from birds to alligators to, you know, to fish and turtles. And so as the we're wet during the summer, it corresponds with the hurricane season, pretty much May through November is rainy season. And then uh, come December, we get less rain and water levels continually, you know, continue to drop as water evaporates, it flows south, soaks into the ground. And so um, as the water levels drop and the water concentrates into shallower ponds and pools, so do the fish, which draws in the the wildlife, right? So particularly the bird life, the wading birds. And so some great places to see a lot of the, the larger wading bird species are going to be the Anhinga Trail, which hopefully you experienced. Mm-hmm. Shark Valley is another location. Mm-hmm. We get nesting wood storks and roseate spoonbills at Paheoki, uh, which is one of the trails about halfway between the entrance, the main entrance to the park and Flamingo. You can see all kinds of wildlife as you drive across Tamiami Trail through the Everglades and through Big Cypress. And then Flamingo, you're going to have more of the shorebirds. We get white pelicans that uh, migrate in for the winter. Occasionally, an, an actual flamingo in Flamingo. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would, that would I don't be know good if you for heard that. Yeah, I did hear that. That was good. Right. Look, Danielle was rapturous in uh, the, being down there for the bird watching. And even, I'm not a birder. But it was it was resplendent and impressive to see the variety of birds and uh you may be used to it, but how colorful they are and how active they are. I mean, they're everywhere. So it was great to see. And it was a great part. And for me, an extra bonus of the trip. Oh, good. You mentioned Shark Valley, which is a great spot to see a lot of those birds, which we did. I took the bike ride, which was great. And I did the, I did the circuit. Mm-hmm. Where else are good bike trips in Everglades? Because uh, it may be an underrated thing that it's, it's a decent biking park as well, considering it's kind of mm-hmm. flat and uh, you can get some shade here and there. But where are some other uh, bike routes that one can take? Yeah, that's probably, uh, that's, that one's particularly nice because for wildlife viewing and because it's a paved road, but you are kind of sharing the road with the, the tram that goes through yeah. and then other people walking. Um, and the another location. Yes, and the alligators. Just right. Chilling out right on the asphalt. Like I had to, you could not let my mind wander because uh, <laughs> the gators <laughs> were out there sunning themselves. I had to, I had to just stay alert. Nice, nice. And hey, since you mentioned Shark Valley and the, the tram road there, that's a great place to bike at night, uh, particularly on a full moon or on, a, you know, a, even a partially full moon. That's um, a good tip. 
Yeah, and it's it's surprising how much ambient light there is. And of course, you would want to take a flashlight with you, but you can turn it off for a good part of the way and uh, and still see what you're see where you're going. So another good location for biking is in the Pineland habitat. So along the Main Park Road, out of the Long Pine Key campground area, there is the beginning of the Long Pine Key uh, Long Pine Key Trail. Call it on the park map. Uh, and that's a seven mile, um, seven miles one way for a bike trail. And it's through the pine rocklands and the prairies. Um, and so then you could turn around and come back or you could come back on the main park road. You just want to be aware that on the main park road, cars are able to go at 55 miles per hour. Right. And there's no real, you know, shoulder for, uh, for bikes. Well, that sounds like a really nice bike trip because it sounds like you're going to head through two different types of topography it sounds like yeah two different type of environments a dirt trail and and less wildlife through there and a little more focus on the you know the the habitats and and the plant life but very beautiful so just a couple more questions for you allison is uh mm-hmm. you know you mentioned dirt trail so just regular old hiking with my feet we kind of we talked a little bit about it with uh the trails the kayak trails or where where can we go there the bike trails but what else are some decent hikes that uh, you could recommend, whether they're into the backcountry or they're, uh, are there any more ranger-guided hikes? What, what else would you recommend? Yeah, one of the things I like to recommend to folks that are going along the main park road, again, out of that homestead entrance all the way to the 38 miles to Flamingo, um, along the way are short boardwalk or paved trails, usually between half a mile and a mile long. Each one is through a different ecosystem in the Everglades, right? So it gives you one through the Pine Rocklands, one through, takes you to an overlook over the Sawgrass Marsh. Another one is through the Hardwood Hammock. West Lake is through the mangroves. And then eventually you get to Flamingo and see out onto Florida Bay. So it's a wonderful way to sort of follow the watershed and also see the changes in all of those different ecosystems that lend themselves that support the biodiversity that we have uh, here in the park, both in plants and animals. And how long did you say that hike is? They're different ones and they're um, marked, you know, with some of our wayside signs or interpretive, right. you know, a little bit of interpretive information. They're all under a mile. Under a mile. So generally speaking, kid friendly. Yeah. You would say? Yeah, That's good to I know. Yeah. Similar to what you experienced on the Anhinga Trail. There, some are boardwalks uh, and some are just paved. Or Yeah. That sounds like a good time in the, in the front country. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, look, we one thing we wanted to bring up, we would be remiss is since we visited... Uh, Everglades was in the national news because a, I hope I get it right, a a Brutus whale mm-hmm. uh, washed up, uh, unfortunately, a deceased Brutus whale washed up uh, right near where we had been camping. And so can you give us the update on, on or just give us the backstory on what happened and any updates since uh, this broke through the national news? Right. So the Brutus whale was found out in Florida Bay near a, an island called Sandy Key, and uh, it was found by some uh, fishermen or some guides in the park, and uh, they reported it. And our Marine Mammal Stranding Response Network came out, which is a number of different organizations. And they, with assistance from park staff, towed the whale back into Flamingo to the marina. And uh, they were able to do a necropsy uh, right there on the launch ramp, which is a little unusual, perhaps, for us to do. But it was a wonderful you know, it's very sad that the whale is deceased, but it's a wonderful learning opportunity. And the piece that's pretty significant is this is a pretty rare whale worldwide. How's that for a tongue twister? But it's possible that this particular whale came from a subspecies that's only found in the Gulf of Mexico. 
Ah. And it's a baleen, yeah, which is incredible. And if that's the case, we're still waiting for the genetic testing to come back to verify that. But if that's the case, they say there's between 15 and 40 of those whales left. So it's a very, yeah, very rare whale. And what's happened is um, in addition to the, you know, one of the the good things that came out of this is that it was reported so soon after it, after it died. And so the, the whale tissues were very fresh and uh, that's good from a biological research perspective because you can take samples of the different organs and the tissues in the animal and that's helpful to be able to learn more about the species and hopefully to try to find out why what happened to it what caused it to die yeah so we still don't know again it was a ju- i read it was a juvenile or a young adult whale it wasn't a yeah. a whale dying of old age yes that's uh it's disconcerting but also i hope there's some good science yep. that can come out of this, but it was uh, it was exciting. We just missed it by a, a few weeks. Uh, so, yeah. So, Allison, thank you again for your time. My, my last question for you, and we ask mm-hmm. this of all of our guests, is do you have a, uh, having been in, in Everglades, do you have a moment, uh, did you have a moment where it just hit you where you're walking around the Everglades or you're working or maybe, maybe it's a day off where you really had the epiphany of how much you appreciate Everglades and what makes it special? Do you have a moment like that that you can share with us? Sure. I, one of my favorite ways to experience the park is what we call a sluice log or a wet walk. And that's where you go walking, essentially off trail. You just, you know, park on the side of the road and you walk into the water and you might be knee deep or waist, you know, waist deep in water or maybe only ankle deep, depending on the time of year. But to go that direction, you maybe walk out through the sawgrass. And um, we have uh, another ecosystem called the Cypress, Cypress Domes. And you walk into one of those, and I just find those to really be the cathedral of the Everglades. Uh, you have these tall, lithe trees that are just sort of, they bend and sway. They're very adapt, well adapted to being in a hurricane-prone environment. And they have these soft, feathery needles for leaves. And then they are buttressed at the base, and the bark of the tree is whitish and you know, grayish in color. But there is something, you hear a lot of ambient noise when you're outside of the cypress dome, and you go inside, and it's suddenly a little quieter, and you're sloshing through the water. The water color changes. It's more of a dark but very clear water. It just has this, this very special feeling, and it feels very, I always feel very privileged to have that opportunity to go into the, the cypress dome and just sort of be in the middle of the Everglades. That, that sounds great. Now, is it a, is it a uh, secret spot that you can, or, or can you share where, where we can access this ourselves? Or is this just uh, for rangers only? No, um, anybody can do it. Um, there's a number of different cypress domes. I don't even know that I have a favorite, and I've had that feeling a number of times in different locations. We do ranger-guided walks or hikes into the cypress domes during the wintertime. Most of them are, I would say, around the Pahiyoki area. Off of the main park road is kind of the best area for mm. some of those cypress. And some are close, right up next to the road, and some are, you know, you could hike a, mile, a good mile or so to get to one. What a, what a great tip to end on. And, and now I just need to go back for the, for the chickies, the cypress domes, and, and all the other things that we miss. So, Allison Gant, Acting uh, Chief of Public Affairs, Everglades National Park, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, Brian. Hope to see you soon. You bet. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, 
consider clicking on support our show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review, give us a five-star rating, and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.